Good morning, Christ Prez, and happy Easter to you. You know, all through Lent, we've been exploring the theme of Christian humility. And in these messages, we've looked at how the entire Christian life is meant to lead us into humility. Last week, we were reminded that real life includes death and that even our deaths are meant to lead us into humility. As we've moved through Holy Week together, we've remembered that Jesus himself embraced the low road that leads to his death. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. But of course, the story doesn't end there. Uh, If that were the end of the story, none of us would be here today. I mean, Christianity just wouldn't be a thing. There would be no church. Remember, there were plenty of people before Jesus who had claimed to be the Messiah. They had followers. Some of them led little revolutions. But now they've all died, and most people don't even know their names. Central to the Christian message is the claim that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. The message is that he lives, and because he lives, we will live also. But even the resurrection, this most glorious of truths, is meant to lead us into humility. Even the resurrection is all about humility. Think for a moment of how you might want to pull off a resurrection. Think of how you'd do it. I mean, if it were me, I'd probably want big, flashy, attention-grabbing. I'd want that kind of resurrection. One that screams, hey, everyone, I'm back. I just beat death. Well... According to the gospel accounts, as far as we can tell, no one actually witnessed the resurrection. I mean, it happened so quietly, almost secretively. It's it's the most world-transforming event ever, and God pulls it off in private. We just don't have eyewitness accounts of the resurrection event itself. What was it like? We don't know. That's how humble God was about it. What we do get is post-resurrection accounts of people discovering the empty tomb and then meeting the risen Jesus. We get accounts like the one in our passage. The disciples have gathered, and then the risen Jesus appears among them. I want to look at this passage um, and, and get into it by looking at what Jesus shows us here about the nature of his resurrection. And then we'll think together about some of the implications it has for us. And throughout, I'll try to highlight the humility in all of it. So the nature of the resurrection, you know, it seems pretty clear in our passage that Jesus wants the disciples to know who he is and what he is. And so he shows this to them in several ways. The first thing we see is that uh, Jesus can appear and disappear. The disciples are standing there talking and then suddenly Jesus is there with them. In the parallel account in John's gospel, uh, John includes the detail that the disciples were gathered together in a room with the doors locked which makes sense because the disciples thought Jesus was dead and their leader had just been executed and they were very afraid. But still, even with the doors locked, Jesus appears among the disciples. So it's not surprising that the disciples are frightened by this and they think they're seeing some kind of spirit. Jesus is doing things that normal people can't do. I mean, initially he seems ghost-like. It seems like his existence is less than material. But Jesus has more to show them. He says, look at me, I'm not a spirit. Spirits don't have flesh and bones as you can see I do. He appears among them, even though the doors have been locked, but now he wants them to know that he has flesh and bones. Now you can imagine that this would be perplexing to the disciples, not a spirit, but you can pass through walls and you can just appear and disappear at will. 
I mean, if I were there, I'd still think I was having some kind of vision, maybe hallucinating. And so what does Jesus do? He says, do you all have anything to eat? And sure enough, they have some broiled fish, which they give to Jesus, who proceeds to eat it right there in front of them. So he's spiritual, but he's physical. He can pass through walls, appear and disappear, and he eats fish. He says, touch me and see. He's saying, you're not hallucinating, I'm real. He's spiritual, he's physical, and he's humble. I mean, there's no deliberate shock and awe in his self-presentation here. He's patiently displaying who he is so that the disciples will come to trust that it's really him. Well, there's one more really important thing that Jesus shows the disciples, and we see it in verse 39. He says, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. See, Jesus wants the disciples to know that it's really him. He's different, but his identity is the same. His body has been changed, but his hands and his feet still show the wounds of his crucifixion. He's been transformed, but it's still the same Jesus the disciples knew before he died. He has the same history, the same memories. It's not some new person who the disciples need to get to know. It's not some new person who they're meeting for the first time. It's the very same Jesus. The resurrected Jesus is none other than the crucified Jesus. And here's another way we see the humility of the resurrection. I mean, uh, the incarnation doesn't stop. God doesn't resurrect Jesus away from humanity or out of human existence. If anything, the resurrection is toward this fuller kind of truer humanity. And Jesus doesn't leave his wounds behind. He still bears the scars. This is still the one who goes low for the sake of the last and the least and the lost. Jesus is showing the disciples and us the humble nature of his resurrection. And by implication, he's showing us the nature of our own future resurrections. It's like Jesus' resurrection is a preview of our own. You know, Paul calls the resurrected Jesus the first fruits of the new creation. It's like we can look at him to see what God plans for us and for the world. He wants us to see not just the nature of his resurrection, but the nature of ours. And what he shows us is completely category busting. I mean, this just doesn't fit into our usual way of thinking about these things. In our usual way of thinking, you're either a spirit or a body, or you're a body with a spirit or a spirit with a body. But we tend to keep the physical and the spiritual separated out in our thinking. We think bodies eat fish and spirits pass through walls. And that's that. But what Jesus shows us doesn't fit that paradigm at all. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the apostle Paul writes this, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Paul doesn't say we're going to be resurrected as spirits, and he doesn't say we're going to be resurrected as bodies. He says we'll be resurrected as spiritual bodies. As far as I know, Christianity is the only religion and the only way of viewing the world that brings the physical and the spiritual together like this. 
mean, Jesus is showing the disciples something that just won't fit the way we usually think about these things because he's not saying, saying, um, hey guys, look, I'm somewhere in this body. He's saying, guys, look, this is me. I am this transformed spiritual body. Paradoxical? Sure. Hard to understand? Absolutely. But Jesus says, this is your future, a spiritual body, flesh and bones that can pass through walls, a spirit that can eat fish. So what difference does this make? I mean, how should we live in light of this truth? I love what N.T. Wright says. I'll I'll read a paragraph uh, that he's written. He, He says, quote, the message of the resurrection is that this world matters that the injustices and pains of this present world must now be addressed with the news that healing, justice, and love have won. If Easter means Jesus Christ is only raised in a spiritual sense, then it is only about me and finding a new dimension in my personal spiritual life. But if Jesus Christ is truly risen from the dead, Christianity becomes good news for the whole world. News which warms our hearts precisely because it isn't only about warming hearts. Close quote. See, the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead means that this world matters. And because this world matters, we must care for it. This is, this is one huge implication of the resurrection. We must care for this world. You know, so often the body and the spirit get divided up. I mean, stereotypically, Christians who have been more theologically conservative have occupied their time with soul saving, trying to get people to make a decision for Christ so that they'll be saved when they die. Um, the, the evangelist D.L. Moody is reported to have said, it's best not to spend too much time polishing the rails on a sinking ship. His point was that creation was going down, it was going under, and that it was best to prepare people by just um, to, to get off the ship altogether. Christians of a more liberal bent have been more interested in issues of justice and caring for the poor and trying to make this world a better place. And the resurrection just says, do both. I mean, care for people's souls and their bodies. Don't divide these things up. They can't be torn apart. That kind of dualism just doesn't match the biblical witness because all of who we are, bodies and souls, are going to have a future with Jesus. Christians who take the bodily resurrection seriously have more reason to care about this world, I think, than anyone. Uh, C.S. Lewis writes this. He says, Christianity is a fighting religion. It thinks God made the world, that space and time, heat and cold, and all the colors and tastes and all the animals and vegetables are things that God made up out of his own head as a man makes up a story. But it also thinks that a great many things have gone wrong with the world that God has made and that God insists and insists very loudly on putting them right again. I don't know any other worldview that gives such a good reason to care for this world. You know, secularism really doesn't do it. I mean, if this material world is really all that exists, the the question is, why should we care about it? I mean, it might make sense just for our own temporary comfort and for the comfort of the people we love and comfort of future generations to take care of our own immediate surroundings as best we can. But ultimately, all the work we do caring for this world is going to be swallowed up by death 
if, if the material world is all that is. If this material universe is all that, that's really real, then in the end, it won't have mattered at all whether we loved other people or not. It won't have mattered at all whether we fed the hungry and clothed the naked. We're all just matter in motion on our way to an eternal grave. And then there are a lot of philosophies and worldviews and religions out there that say what really matters is the spiritual world and that our future is going to be about being released from this material world into some kind of like purely spiritual existence. But again, if our future is just about escape from this world, what good reason do we have to care for it right here and right now? Why should we respect our own bodies or the bodies of other people? if they aren't going to last, if they don't have a future. See, the resurrection of Jesus gives us a different story. I love what Vinath Ramachandra writes. This is a lengthy quote, but it's so good. And I'll just, I'll read it for you. He writes this, quote, the story of Jesus subverts the stories of salvation that we find in other world religions. All these stories, especially the dominant schools of Hindu, Buddhist, and New Age philosophies, offer us liberation freedom from the shackles of our humanness. The way to ultimate transcendence lies in breaking free from our individuality, physical embodiment, and entanglements in this meaningless world of historical existence, the ordinary everyday world of work and home. Our humanness gets in the way of transcendence or union with the divine. But the cross speaks of a God who is entangled with our world who immerses himself in our tragic history, who embraces our humanity with all its vulnerability, pain, and confusion, including our evil and our death. Here is a God who comes to us, not as a master, but as a servant, who stoops to wash the feet of his disciples and to suffer brutalization and dehumanization at the hands of his creatures. In identifying with us in our humanity, he draws the human into his own divine life. So what this means is that the closer we get to God, the more human we become, not less. And our created physical bodies have a future. In raising Jesus from death, the creator was affirming our humanity. This historical embodied existence has a future. So our salvation, he writes, lies Uh, not in an escape from this world, but in the transformation of this world. Everything good and true and beautiful in history is not lost forever, but will be restored and directed to the worship of God. All our human activity in the arts and sciences, economics and politics, and even the non-human creation will be brought to share in the liberating rule of God. This grand vision centers on the cross of Jesus Christ. There, a vision of future hope opens up for the world. You will not find hope for the world in any religious systems or philosophies of humankind. The biblical vision is unique. That is why when some say there is salvation in other faiths, I ask them, well, what salvation are you talking about? No faith holds out a promise of eternal salvation for the world the way the cross and resurrection of Jesus do. Close quote. Well, (laughs) that passage could have been the whole sermon and it would have been much shorter. Um, The basic point is that this world matters. God's intention isn't in the end to rip the physical and spiritual apart, but to unite them in a way that we can hardly imagine. 
the end is a new heaven and it's also a new earth. So our future isn't less than spiritual, it's much, much more. The physical world matters, and because it matters, we must care for it. But here's the thing, and you all know this, caring for this world is costly. Helping other people often means laying aside your desires. Putting the interests of others before your own requires sacrifice. The past few weeks, we've spent time looking at the way Jesus defined discipleship as this call to deny ourselves and to take up the cross and to follow him. It's a call to take the low road of humble, self-giving love. See, the doctrine of the resurrection shows us that this world matters, so we, we must care for it. But can we care for it? Does the resurrection also give us the resources and power to care for the world and not just for ourselves? In other words, does the resurrection provide real power for humility? Family, it does. The resurrection tells us that this world matters, so we must care for it, but it also shows us that this world isn't all that matters. And so we're free to care for it. You see, you'll only ever be really willing to risk your life and love for others if you believe that this world isn't the only world that matters. If this is the only world that matters, then frankly, you can't afford humility. Protect yourself at all costs. Do everything you can to stay healthy and wealthy for as long as you can, because this is all you have. Look out for the interests of others, maybe, but only to the extent that it serves your own interests. Hang on to your life no matter what. But if you believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, as the creed says, well, that entirely changes your perspective. Yes, this world matters, but until you see that this world isn't the only world that matters, you won't be able to pour your life out for it. You won't really able, really be able to love it in humility. This world matters, but you won't be free to care for it until you see that it's not the only world that matters. Think about your time. See, if this world is all that matters, your time is the most precious commodity you have. And so you should protect it and guard it. Interruptions and distractions are the worst thing in the world. But resurrection means you have an eternity waiting for you. And so the time you waste loving others isn't wasted time at all. The resurrection frees you to be humble about your time. Think about your possessions. If this world is all that matters, you should protect what's yours at all costs. You should give only if you're sure you'll get in return. But resurrection means that you will inherit all things. Jesus said, in my father's house, there are many rooms. I mean, all things are yours in Christ. And so there's real freedom for extravagant generosity. The resurrection frees you to be humble with your stuff, with your possessions. Think about your relationships. If this world is all that matters, it makes sense only to enter into relationships that are going to benefit you that are going to move you up and to the right. But resurrection means that your life 
is totally secure in the love of God. And so you can be extravagant in your love for others, even when you get nothing in return. Jesus' resurrection calls us to care for this world, and it also frees us to care for this world. It calls us to love, and it frees us to love. It frees us to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. In other words, the resurrection frees us for real humility. You know, for years, I've associated the crucifixion with humility and the resurrection with glory. But what I've been learning, especially through this deep dive, is that the glory is the humility. The humility is the glory. The exaltation of Jesus in his resurrection and ascension isn't a move away from humility. It's not like his humility stops. It continues eternally. Because God is eternal, and the true God is a humble God, always and forever. He's a God who stoops low in love to serve and to save the last and the least and the lost. Family, he's a God who stoops low in love for you. And so if we could peer back into eternity, do you know what we would see? We'd see Jesus the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. And if we could open up heaven and see the heart of reality right now, do you remember what we would see? We'd behold the Lion of Judah, and it would be the slain Lamb. Family, God's glory just is his humble, self-giving, suffering love, which is to say, God's glory is none other than Jesus Christ himself. Now risen from the dead and in his, erected, in his resurrected glory, still humble as ever. See him, trust him, and then come to the table to receive him. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.